This is an ABC podcast. Those that have a go will get a go. Well, I've had a go, mate. I've worked for my life. National unemployment rate at the moment is, uh, I think it's 5.4. Sorry. I thought that election campaigns are tests of leadership, not tests of memory. Google it, mate. We had the debate. We worked through the hard issues. We came to an agreement. And I went to Glasgow. Hello and welcome to the party room. In fact, the second last party room before the election because you're going to get a sneaky extra one from our live show. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Breakfast joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And PK, happy days. Crowd fave Annabelle Crabb is going to join our party today. She's at peak election fitness, I understand, ready for the big night on Saturday night. She's going to be part of, of course, the ABC TV's election night coverage. First, though, PK, less than 48 hours to Election Day when we're recording this. The polls are tightening. Is it deja vu all over the place? It, it does feel a little deja vu in so much as, you know, the whole story has for so long, Fran, been that Labor's been ahead. And what we're seeing now is uh, Labor's still ahead officially, but certainly a tightening. Now, that always happens. At the Australian elections are always tight. We have compulsory voting. Mm-hmm. Um, we always have tight elections. But uh, there seems to be because, I think, in the Labor camp... Um, so much PTSD from the last election and so much uncertainty around um, uh, what what data means and how can, how this data can be trusted and, and the fact that it's tightening. A lot of nerves and a spring in the step, which we'll talk about a little later with Annabelle too, in the coalition camp. Uh, to me, it's it's too close to call at this stage. Yeah, and as you say, to a lot of those Labor MPs, I've been checking quite a few of them over the last 24 hours, and they are nervous and they are just still going full tilt. You can just need to look at Labor flight bookings in the next 48 hours. Anthony Albanese and members of his front bench, Tanya Plibersek, Penny Wong, Jim Chalmers, Jason Clare, a whole bunch of them are literally racing across the country, visited targeted seats. Seats like Leichhardt in Queensland, Brisbane in um, Brisbane in Queensland, seats like Boothby and Sturt in Adelaide or, you know, even even Benelong in Sydney, PK, a seat that's come into focus for Labor as winnable. It's a blitz. They're hunting every vote and they're shoring up their own seats too. So Scott Morrison, he's on a race around the place too. I think he's visiting every state in this past week. But Scott Morrison, I think we should just wind it back a few days, PK, and look at the final blast from him that started last Friday with this startling omission that he can be, well, a bit of a bulldozer. Over the last three years, and particularly the last two, what have Australians have needed for me, from me going through this pandemic has been strength and resilience. Now, I admit, that hasn't enabled Australians to see a lot of other gears in the way I work. And I know Australians know that I can be a bit of a bulldozer when it comes to issues. And the concessions just keep rolling from Scott Morrison as he tries to claw back votes by really trying to soften his image in the final week of the campaign. Now, here he is being interviewed on A Current Affair by Tracy Grimshaw, agreeing that he should never have used that now infamous phrase. I mean, kids are using it, right? That's how (laughs) widespread it is, which is that phrase, hold a hose. Would you have not referred to the life-risking, life-saving heroism of rural firefighters as holding a hose if you had your time again? 
Well, I don't think that was the context of the comment, but certainly that wasn't a comment uh, at the time that was helpful and, of course. Not helpful, PK. Understatement. So why are we getting this, you know, ScoMo 2.0 pitch? Well, I think the answer is pretty obvious. It's the polls telling me he has to. That's my guess anyway. All through this campaign, people who are doing focus testing groups with groups of undecided voters have been reporting deep dissatisfaction, dislike even of Scott Morrison, of his smile, of his smirk, some say, of a tendency people saw of him trying to, to blame shift. And that's why Labor picked up, obviously, on that I don't hold a hose mate thing for its ads. And there's some empirical evidence too, according to some Liberal polling that um, fell into the hands of Network 10's Peter Van Onselen, that the Liberal Party is not popular with women. There seems to be, according to this polling anyway, a very big gender divide in Liberal voting patterns at the moment. So I guess the conclusion was Scott Morrison needs to sort of set aside bulldozer mode and show a softer, more empathic side to try and attract female voters. Is that it? Is that how you saw it? Yeah, well, that is exactly what it was. I think it's a rather odd way of doing it. A couple of reasons. Why so late? Uh, if you want to reset with a set of voters that you think have a negative impression of you, which clearly he was trying to do, a week out from bowling day, I don't. I think is too late for the believability element of it. Um, I think you need to kind of establish that there's a real sort of come to Jesus, you know, awareness, self awareness for for a little longer. That's one element that I think is quite key. The other one is he hasn't really stuck to a consistent line on this, and I think this is a little odd. Because he did the sort of last Friday, it was actually the day after we recorded our last podcast, he, he first revealed it and it was a big campaign moment. He knew it, a um, bit of a bulldozer, very specific word uh, that he was going to, that people could trust in him. He was being more positive in the next three years. He would be different, a different mode. People will see a different kind of Scott Morrison. And then since that time, he's almost kind of reined it back a bit and almost lent into the bulldozer again, as if it's a strength, uh, that we needed a bulldozer with China and we needed a bulldozer during the pandemic. Someone who doesn't consult was important then so they could just get in and do the work. But even on that argument, I think one of the biggest criticisms of the Prime Minister is that he doesn't do the job. That's been the Labor narrative. So then to say I was too busy doing the job was, again, not really getting it. He was responding to focus group data, which says all of these things about him, that people find him a bully, people find him belligerent, or negative words that keep getting repeated in these groups, in Labor groups and Liberal groups. It's consistent across the country. He's lent into it again as a strength, which actually makes it even harder to believe it, that he's had any kind of revisiting on this. And ever since he's been subjected to questioning from Lee Sales, from Tracy Grimshaw about what that means, how long have you known you're a bulldozer, what does that look like? And I still don't think he's really reset this question at all. So I don't know how much he's really managed to neutralise this negativity. Yeah, I think that's right, because also it's very late in the day too, PK. I mean, three million people, there's been a lot said about this, had already voted in pre-poll and postal vote by the time the Prime Minister made that pitch at his election launch. Same goes for the super housing policy, which was the centrepiece of that launch. Now, that policy does seem to have energised, and that launch, I think it's fair to say, PK, has energised um, Scott Morrison for this final week. But is it all too late in the day? That's what 
we don't know. The polls are tightening. Um, Labor are feeling under pressure. Anthony Albanese had a pretty good comeback, I thought, on on the bulldozer line. He said, well, I'm a builder. I don't want to knock things down. That's what bulldozers do. I want to build them up, which sort of fits nicely into his whole campaign pitch of, you know, I want to unite the nation. But Yes, it's very late in the campaign for Scott Morrison to remake himself. It's also only a few days left for Anthony Albanese to really cut through. And if Scott Morrison's looking at the polls, so is Anthony Albanese. And what the focus groups are saying, according to to a number of people who are reporting in from them, is that people aren't quite convinced of him either. No, uh, they're not. And uh, look, he's had a tricky couple of days at the end of the campaign, I think, with the media. Now, of course, Anthony Albanese, you know, will say that the media, the media pack, and that's a whole other podcast has been too aggressive or, or there's a, I'm not quoting him directly, by the way, this is my analysis of what's going on. Um, and, you know, this idea that he's running away from questions, he's really doubled in and what, said, hang on a minute. What do you think about that? I mean, running away from questions, he did front up at the National Press Club. He did front up to a number of one-on-one interviews, big ones on the ABC. I'm thinking like Q&A and Insiders and, you know, your show and my show, which Scott Morrison hasn't done. Do you think he can fairly be accused of running away from the press pack? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think he can fairly be accused of running from the press pack. No, when you frame it as a question like that, absolutely not. What Scott Morrison does, and it has worked him, worked a treat for him, that I think the reporters try to subjective subject him to rigorous questioning. But maybe he goes back to the bulldozer. He's a better bulldozer. Yeah, better at managing that, extracting himself. he is, whereas Anthony Albanese has not been as effective at managing the press. Now, I think this is a really wicked problem because I, as a journalist, do not want to uh, ever encourage a situation where we are managed better. I just think that's terrible for the fourth estate. So I don't want to advocate for it. And when Anthony Albanese is criticised for it, like, oh, see, he was bad at it. I don't believe that we should reward bad behaviour, i.e., oh, then because he's easier to beat up in a press conference. Uh, I actually don't I don't see that as a, as a strength of Scott Morrison's uh, to know how to kind of manage and choose the right journalists and ignore others. I know some that have been completely ignored, right? Um, Anthony Albanese has had a couple of of uh, journalists in the press pack who have been pretty good at getting under his skin and um, just keep coming back. Uh, he started to use this framing in his answers where he says, I, you ask the question, you give me a chance to answer. But unfortunately for leaders, they end up looking like sometimes like they're the kind of grumpy ones. Yeah, it looks tetchy, doesn't it? Yeah, doesn't he? And, and that's not helpful, right? The, those, those pictures are not helpful for him. Now, I don't know how definitive they'll be for the campaign. And a few people have pointed out, and I do listen to what the public has to say, I think people's views are important, that Scott Morrison has also shut down press conferences and walked away. I reckon that's true. And just, you know, this is what leaders do, right? That, you know, not, not every press conference is the famous, I'm going to take every single question and exhaust the question. Not, not every day is like that. Um, but, you know, Labor made a strategic decision, for instance, on the costings that it would release them on Thursday. We're recording them before this before they're released. And we'll talk about it a bit more with Annabelle about the implications. But ever since... The press is going to ask every day about them. He keeps saying that's when they're going to be released, but they're still going. And this is the risk of leaving it late because you open yourself up to that. And uh, this is the the, the issue for uh, Anthony Albanese. At the end of the day, let's bring in Annabelle because I want to hear her broader analysis of what this six weeks has actually been about, Fran. Let's do <laughs> it. I'm still trying to work it out myself. Me too, Pico. Me too. It. 
Annabelle Crabb, ABC commentator and general all-round superstar. We've saved the best to last. Welcome to the party room. Oh, you're very kind. And, and just at this point of the campaign, if someone's kind to me, I cry. So just be warned. <laughs> and guess what? She's actually tearing up here. I know. It's been a long campaign. Hey, Annabelle, we've just been talking about Scott Morrison's, you know, reset the uh, can be a bit of a bulldozer yep. thing. Yeah. Aimed mainly at women is is our view. What do you what do you think it is that women want to see from Scott Morrison to win their vote? And can a bulldozer ever really change its spots? Can a bulldozer learn? Well, the bulldozer has been a bit of a strolling feast of reinvention because I mean, on Friday it was you know I'm a bit of a bulldozer. I recognise that I'm going to be a different sort of person. <laughs> Got and the gear it, changes. Then then it became sort of well I only said that because circumstances have changed and of course you know now that we're sailing into this the sunlit uplands if you can sail into some uplands, um, you know, there's just going to be different, you know, there's going to be different challenges and that's all I meant. And then on the next day it was sort of, well, I mean, the nation needed a bulldozer. I mean, the nation <laughs> loved a bulldozer. Bulldozers mm. rock. Like, yeah, 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 especially and, with China and all no, these no, serious I'm a things. Man. And then like, well, everybody likes bulldozers, so maybe I'll just keep being a bulldozer. I don't know. It just It didn't really have the, look, it just reminded me of the sorts of, domestic arguments you have with your partner where, you know, people talk about, well, this is what I'm like and I'm sorry, but maybe I'm not sorry. It took the shape of that over the course of the week. And I don't know, I have believed for a long time that the last few years have been a particular challenge for Australian women on all sorts of different levels, right? Beginning with what panned out in the pandemic, particularly early in the pandemic, where women were more likely to lose casual work, more likely to lose paid work generally, and also more likely to pick up unpaid work. Or like work, homeschooling. Yeah. Mm-hmm, and more likely to work in sectors that didn't benefit from the sort of stimulus that you saw the the government shoveling out the door. And the, the 2020 budget was this kind of extraordinary document that seemed to be drafted for Men. male blue collar employees, right? Like, so with but roads and, you know, infrastructure and, and, you know, manufacturing and all this stuff. And I reckon, mm. you know, there were heaps of women that became aware of that, I think, and thought, well, hang on a minute, like, what about where I work? So, and, you know, sectors like the arts, university, and to some extent, um, retail, just sort of didn't pick up the same sort of assistance. And I think that really started a problem for the government. And that's why I think last year when you saw those protests happen after Brittany Higgins told her story and then you started finding out a bit more about the historic culture in Parliament, which was quite confronting, I think part of the strength and the vehemence of that protest and response from women was bound up in all the other stuff as well. A kind of a sense of, are you for real, like, serious? So um, I think that it's been like a snowball gathering. Mm. And the thing that I find interesting is although the government certainly took steps in the next budget and the most recent one to put some more money into, you know, into aged care, into childcare, and also to sort of reinstate the women's budget and all that sort of stuff, and definitely moved some funds into domestic violence, mm. which is a really Essential. crucial um, area. I don't really see them talking about it that much and it's bizarre because... And there's still an awful lot of sort of high-vis and manufacturing <laughs> and construction sites and sort right. of featured right through this campaign. Well, I right? mean, the Financial Review at the one-month mark of the campaign did this really interesting analysis looking at campaign activity by workplace visited and um, Scott Morrison 
visited by far and away his most common port of call was manufacturing workplaces. In fact, it was nearly twice the next category, which was community um, uh, events. And I thought that was really interesting because I think obviously I'm looking for this sort of stuff and I'm conscious of it because I think about it. But to me, visually, this campaign has been very hard hat kind of high vis. Mm. And there is an explanation, I think, for why you're seeing this this emergence of professional women who, you know, we, we call the teals. I think it's that demographic of women that feels specifically overlooked by the Prime Minister that's kind of thinking, well, we're finding our own voice. And the demographic of professional women is the fastest growing and now the most significant single demographic of people in Australia. I've read some recent research confirming. And, and they're actually, if you look at the figures, we know that women are the undecided voters of this campaign. According to the ANU study, uh, right. women are three times more likely than men to remain undecided about who they're voting for. The coalition camp are trying to seize on this. Yep. Uh, this week you saw that, right, in the last week of the campaign, we've seen Scott Morrison leaning into the Jenny factor. She's popped up everywhere with the Prime Minister yep. in the final week, mm-hmm. uh, which is not surprising. She's she's um, kind of, you know, well-liked, yeah. yeah. And now she's even, which I think is quite interesting and I haven't seen before. I'm not saying it hasn't happened because I haven't checked everything, but I've, I haven't seen it. Spruiking policies with Scott Morrison on his social media pages. Let's yeah. take a listen to this video of Jenny Morrison that appeared on Scott Morrison's Instagram. Hi, we're up here in Darwin and we've just got some exciting news about how you can get into your first home. So important for Australians. That's right. Owning your own home is one of the most important things you can do in life. And what we're doing is we're helping Australians get into their first home by allowing them to be able to use their own superannuation. Okay, so, you know. I had not... Um, yeah, yeah that one. that's amazing. Yeah, I, I have never seen with that it. happen before. <laughs> I mean, having to... having wives on the trail with you is is not uncommon, like PK said, and mm. it, it, you can see how it helps the candidate. I mean, they're away from home, they're running, they're under mm. pressure. It's often terrific to have your partner with you, and mm. and she is lovely, and she's popular on the trail. But mm. actually, saying we've got some news for you, it's a s- step further. I think maybe it's a kind of a, a recognition that there's a whole demographic that is not buying it. I mean, it's a massive gamble, right? Like Over the course of the election campaign, I've been watching and thinking, they've obviously picked a lane, like not to respond to or to try and take on this issue with women because they seem to be doubling down on, you know, the the hard hats and uh, all the rest of it. But this last week kind of handbrake turn makes me wonder whether there's a late-breaking realisation that that's not working. I don't know. I mean, either way, look, it will have worked or it hasn't. Either either Scott Morrison's decision to double down on his appeal to essentially blue-collar men will work because maybe he'll knock over some electorates that um, were Labor electorates. And Those that's outer where, urban electorates. Yeah. Right, and that's about? where he'll, you know, defray the... The, the damage that he might incur or maybe he thinks he won't actually lose any seats in those, um, you know, those teal suits. I mean, either way, I, I'm absolutely fascinated to see what the outcome is and I don't know what it will be. And no, same. No, we don't know. And the, the other thing is this has happened very late in the campaign, like the last week sure. to have this reset to Scott Morrison And 2. three million 0. people have already voted. Exactly. Mm. But the other thing they left to the last week was this 
policy that Jenny Morrison, Scott Morrison was spooking yep. there, which mm-hmm. is this, you know, you're super for housing policy. Why would they leave that to the last week? Are they leaving that to the last week because they want to give a big push and, hey, everybody, I've got this great thing, three million people have already voted? Or do they know it's a red line for Labor, so they're sort of trying to distract Labor onto that ground, which they see as working for them, rather than Labor pursuing the wages, cost of living thing? Yeah, I mean, why would you leave it so late? It doesn't have the feel of a real kind of depth charge that would change the campaign. One thing that I have noticed, though, is that a lot of um, campaigning libs have been much perkier in the last few days, and I think True. part of that... I've seen it too. Yeah, and I think part of that, I mean, one of them said to me, oh, it's better not to die on your knees or something like to that effect. <laughs> like, so even just having a point of difference. And this whole issue about superannuation is becoming a really tribal, tribal yes. one, right? Because at various occasions, you know, they um, Libs have had a go at cracking open super. I mean, something like $36 billion was taken out of people's super accounts by themselves, you know, during the um, Pandemic, period yeah. where you could draw down some of your super early for um, um, to meet the costs of COVID. I mean, a lot of people did that. And um, actually, it was women drew out more of their super and proportionately than, than men did. There were three and a half million applicants and like then one and a half million who went back for another go. So like- And women already quite, have less super. Right, right, yeah. right. So quite significant. Um, this idea that you can um, release super to help pay for your house, it does- capitalise on frustration, I think, among younger working Australians that they're struggling so much, particularly to buy a house and with cost of living, to know that there's this money there that they can't touch, you know. It's a way of um, appealing to that demographic, which could it's be It's a very powerful. strong line, it's your money, it is, isn't it? Right. It keeps looking down the because camera it's saying, it's your money. Like, you know, yeah. the people want government to get out of the way and so on. I mean, and the other thing that's interesting about this And I heard Patricia um, Jane Hume talking on your program about when you asked her about, um, well, wouldn't this jack up the price of real estate? And she said, well, yes, it it would and, you know, but only temporarily. And then, you know, there were sort of muffled shrieks as she was sort of bundled (laughs) off. But um, I don't know. How dare she say the truth? I don't know if that was such a gaffe. A, it was true. It's true. Mm. But B, I don't know. I reckon there'd be people freaking out who have recently bought houses, have massive mortgages and are watching, dreading interest rates going up, who would have heard that and thought, well, furtively, I don't mind if interest, I don't mind if this pushes house prices up. It just means that mine's worth more. And that's kind of the issue with this policy mm. area, right? You've got, yes. you know, a group of desperate, you know, despairing people who fear they're never going to attain what we culturally in this country see as this sort of, you know, bedrock of achievement, you know, owning your own home. And then you've got other people who are like, geez, you know, I paid so much for my house. I hope it doesn't plummet in value. So all, you know. Oh, so bring it on. Wishing the best to all of those poor bastards trying to get into the property market. But look, I wouldn't be heartbroken if, you know, if some insane price increases still happen. So yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. But as to the timing, I do not know. I feel like there is one of the issues I think for the coalition in this campaign has been that their absolute fallback campaigning areas where they are an easy point of difference with Labor uh, over the last decade has been climate, you know, carbon tax, and also debt and deficit. Labor will get you into debt. And of course, on both of those issues, they don't really have a bumper sticker message because on climate, it's like, well, we've got the same, we've got the same target. But if you go to the fine print, you'll notice that the mechanism is slightly different in our, you know, blah, blah, blah. Who's listening to that detail? And then on debt and deficit, 
well, what can they say? Well, well what can they say? It's a trillion dollar unbelievably debt. Uh, you know, huge deficit will be worse under Labor. I mean, it's just, it's not as pointy as, as it used to be. On that though, it is likely to be worse under Labor when we're recording this on a Thursday morning, Labor yep. released mm-hmm. their costings yep. and it is, it looks very likely that Labor's going to have, I don't know what the amount's going to be. Is it going to be 10 billion, 20 billion yep. deficit more? Um, Labor's counting on the fact that with all that debt and deficit out there already through the pandemic, so no one's going to mind. So many billions. The billions. But is that risky in the last 48 hours? Yeah, we are kind of, of attuned because- to debt and deficit trucks and all that. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of the second Shorten campaign, so in 2019, when there was this sense of like, well, we campaigned with cutting off negative gearing last election and we nearly won, so people don't mind. You know, it's all good. <laughs> it's. I think there's a certain air of insouciance <laughs> that isn't necessarily justified because the truth is you're dealing with an extremely hungry bulldozer who is looking for exactly. any crack to drive that bulldozer through and he's he's merciless with our message and, and it's and it's hard to it's hard for labor to get the message across all well, the ours is good debt ours is going to be productive debt so we it's, come it's back okay to bumper stickers right like i mean and the horrible truth about election campaigns is if you can fit your message on a bumper sticker you've got a good chance if you need to send people to the footnotes you're struggling and it's horrible uh, but it's true um it's much easier to make ads it's much easier to get through lines and make them stick when they're simple Wading into a, mm. a debate about what is good and bad debt is sort of a page two discussion. And if your bulldozer's on page one saying, I've always told you, they'll spend more money, even if it's by a factor of, you know, 1%, that's all, that's all a committed debt and deficit campaigner yep. needs. Now, on yesterday's wage price index data, mm. there were some pretty bleak results, 0.7% for March quarter, making the annual rate 2.4% yep. and leaving the gap to inflation at 2.7%. So, you know, short story, uh, your wages aren't going up um, mm. as much as inflation and therefore you are having a hard time when you go to the grocery store and it's annoying people for obvious reasons. Uh, at the same time, later today, we're recording this on a Thursday, the unemployment data will be released. If it's under 4%, the government will you know, go nuts saying, hey, look how low unemployment is under us. So there's two mm-hmm. narratives going on here, obviously, um, Annabelle Crabb. Which one is more potent? I think they're both pretty potent, aren't they? I mean, in a sort they of are. mixed up way, right? Because you've well, real, real wages, wages going down is a simple bumper sticker. Okay. And also no chance of going up in the next year, right? Like we're looking at 18 months. Now you're getting beyond the bumper sticker. Well, no. <laughs> so Anthony Albanese's bumper sticker is, I know how you feel and I want to help. The government's line on wages is sort of, yes, of course we want to help people, but we don't want wages to, you know, ignite this inflation inferno. And I heard um, again this morning, (laughs) Patricia, um, you talking to Stuart Robert and trying to pin him down to like, you're trying to (laughs) get him to talk about, well, where is the government's line on where wages should be? And he was extremely virtuous in um, taking no position whatsoever. But I mean, you know, obviously Labor's taken a position and... If you're listening out for that, maybe you hear that. You think, well, this guy supports me being paid more. And let's face it, over the course of this terrible pandemic, one thing that we've really learned is some of the people on whom we rely most heavily are paid the least. On unemployment, I think it's really, that is a powerful message for the government. And I think you can tinker around the edges with, well, participation rate, there's a lot of hidden stuff inside that figure, but it's a good, strong figure. I think 
over history, I guess there has been a kind of a, an emotional investment in unemployment, right? Because we remember days of huge youth unemployment and so on. But the question is whether voters are more likely to think, yeah, 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 yeah. I know I can get a job. I've already got three of them. My kid's got three jobs. There are jobs everywhere. But the thing is, they just pay so badly and it's mm. so stressful to manage. And that's not a very good answer, not a very clear answer oh, for you. Is it, no, is no, it but that's the thing. That's the thing. That's why I think it is getting close because <laughs> both of those arguments are sort of, you know, having getting traction. I mean, economically, if you were to choose a country in which to spend the last two years, I don't know about you, but I would definitely stay in this country. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's no, if you look around the world, there's no doubt about that. And I mean, in some ways, it's bizarre that given the two years that we've had and where we've wound up, that there is a close election happening, right? I mean, if you'd asked me two years ago and looking at the, the traditional benefits of incumbency during a crisis and how people tend to be much more afraid about making a change when there's a crisis underway, and this crisis is still underway, I would have thought, well, this government will be be around for yeah, a, sure a good in. long while. So it's quite a remarkable thing to watch. And I think the attempt that Labor has made by pursuing a really small target and saying we aren't a risk is probably their most potent campaign message. Yeah, just on that and the the sort of the competing messages and where we've wound up. I, I've I think this is my twelfth election campaign I've worked on. It's really strange this election campaign. No debates on health policy. No mm-hmm. debates on education policy. Mm-hmm. No debates on science policy. No debates on Indigenous affairs. Really, all we've been talking about pretty much is cost of living. Mm-hmm. Uh, national securities come in and mm-hmm. trans athletes. And whether the Prime Minister's bulldozer. I mean, don't, 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 there don't is forget a the heavy machinery. character issue going on here. Which That's true. Is. So what does that tell us about the two major parties? Well, it tells us that they don't want to fight on anything. We talk a lot about Labor's small target policy, but actually Scott Morrison has done a lot of razoring barnacles off the hull as well. I mean, took a huge risk internally and also committed an enormous amount of taxpayers' money to smoothing over um, the inclusion of the National Party uh, in this net zero goal. Now, that's a that's a risk internally, obviously, because there's a whole bunch that don't ever want to accept the idea that we would make economic changes in order to um, move towards net zero in this country. It's also a, a political risk for Scott Morrison because he removed one of the most potent lines of difference between the two major parties mm. that has proved incredibly fruitful electorally for the coalition over the last 10 years. So this small target thing we identify as a, as a Labor tactic, but actually it's a bipartisan tactic. You know, did you ever think... Um, for instance, that you would see Anthony Albanese, this sort of warrior of the left, um, peaceably and unremarkably, like this has barely been remarked on in this campaign, which I find shocking, accepting the proposal that wealthy taxpayers in a couple of years' time will be getting yeah. a significant tax cut. Like, well, he answered that at the press club and he said, you know, when he was sort of described well, as a young... He didn't really answer it though, did he? No, no, no. We just put to him and he said... He told a good well, story though. He told a good yarn, yeah. but he talked about aspiration, that he believes in it because of it's aspirational and that's okay. often... But you kind of, there's been a whole lot of, well, we can't afford that because we can't unpick all the damage that's done by the coalition government. Can't unscramble that egg. Can't, yeah, can't give women, you know, superannuation on that their omelet. parental leave, can't do this, can't do that, but can afford $20 billion a year. <laughs> 
in tax cuts for high income earners. It's just, I mean, it's, it's an odd sort of Labor Party. I mean, I challenge you to disagree with me that says, yeah, okay, uh, we're okay. We've signed up to $20 billion a year in tax cuts for high income earners, but um, we're not we're not able to do anything about New Start. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's I mean, a Labor um, Party that got smashed at the last election because totally. they promised too many taxes. That's what it is, isn't it? Yep, of course. Yep. This is a pragmatic election campaign uh, from all angles. We're not going to ask you for a prediction. Because, no, thank you. Because no, it's like I like fif- you too much. It's like 50 different by-elections exactly. at once. It's you, just, you're gonna, I'm going to have like a big chart, I think, of seats mm-hmm. and sort of just look at them through the night with Anthony yeah. because, you know, that's how, I, that's how I'm going to spend my election. I, I just don't know. Weirdly. But I, I, and, and anything you feel in your bones, they're just your bones. <laughs> your bones are just your bones. They're one thing that um, I do think, you know, that one of the things that happens in the closing days of a campaign is unbelievable degrees of spinning. You know, like people say, you'd be surprised what's happening in this electorate and, yeah. oh, we're a good chance here and, oh, it's got to be a real upset here and whatever. You get it from everywhere. But one of the things that you can't argue with is the physical movement of the, the candidates in the last couple of days. And that often tells you a lot more about where they think they're in trouble and where they need to sandbag. And I noticed that when the Prime Minister eliminated that kid at, on the soccer field last night. <laughs> Just watched that footage a million times. I mean, yeah. It's, Poor old um, Luca. <laughs> he seemed okay. <laughs> He's got a good story to tell. Uh, but I mean, that was in the that was in the seat of of Braddon, which is held by about three percent by Gavin Pearce. Three percent is it? Something like that. So that's where the PM's hanging. And I noticed that when you have a look at the proposed last minute swing through all these seats that Anthony Albanese is apparently planning, most of them seem to be like our Dixon, Longman, Ryan, seats that are held by the coalition. So that tells you that he's still on an aggressive sort of stance trying to win seats. Be interesting to see over the next couple of days whether whether the PM, who um, I think is going to Perth, not sure, um, goes to seats that the coalition holds or seats that... Or heads back he to Parramatta. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Annabelle? Fabulous to have you in the party room and good luck. You're going to be one of the stars around the table on ABC's ABC TV's election coverage on Saturday night. Yep, we're going to an unbelievable number of electorates to check in what's happening. Um, we've got an incredible um, resource of OB vans and reporters standing by in an unthinkable number of seats because I think there will be movements, shifts and surprises. It's one of those. I can't think of another uh, election that I have been more puzzled by and more excited by because we sit around and twirl our moustaches and, you know, Mm. get spun this and that and um, guess and read polls and stuff. But there's nothing more incontrovertible than the actual opinion of the Australian people. And to see that blossom forth on election night is an extraordinary thing to see. Mm. Have a great night. Thank you, Annabelle. Questions without notice, the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Oh, soon we'll have a new speaker mm. after this election too, that voice. Anyway, yes, the, the bells are ringing while they've rung, and it's time for our question time. This week's question comes from Alastair, who writes, the federal campaign is about the only thing in Australia that's COVID-free right now. <laughs> that's so funny. Boom, boom. Without presenting a substantial policy position for us to vote on, how can the next government claim a mandate to take action on the pandemic? Well, big shout out to Alistair too. 
an avid party room fan, I know, thanks. Um, well, how can they? I don't think Scott Morrison wants to have a mandate to take action on the pandemic particularly because his line is the pandemic is behind us and we're now living with COVID. That's his plan. That's how he's going on the front foot and saying, you know, it's under control basically. We're living with COVID and made a point, didn't he, PK, of this week, pushing quite hard on the fact that he's not going to, under him, we're not going to go back to lockdowns. We're not going to go back to daily press conferences. I have been watching this. I'm so interested in this area and probably because we are in this era of living with COVID every day. My partner is a teacher. My kids go to school every day. There's, you know, lots of teachers that aren't there and classes and that can't function. Lots of things are happening at the moment because Mm -hmm. living with COVID is actually really hard, right? Um, You know, dodging it. Everyone I know is getting COVID. It is a really big issue and flu. It's a really hard time. They both, it's almost been bipartisan, Fran, that they've gone, no, we're not going to go there. You know why? Because they have made an assessment, which is based on the focus groups again, people never raise it. They don't want to talk about COVID anymore. There is genuine community fatigue about COVID. There really is. Those daily press conferences, all of that actually is a sort of collective um, PTSD trauma-like thing for people. And it's real. Now, yeah. I want to make the point that I know that people are equally concerned about the deaths and the sickness. That's not to say people don't want their system to work, but the actual, that kind of extremity that we went through, people are past that. So that's yeah. why they've decided not to do it. I spoke to Sharon Lewin on um, RM Breakfast. She said to me, I actually think it's good that it's not been in the campaign because we don't want it to be a political issue. That was an interesting point. At the last moments of the campaign, they were both asked, you're right, Scott Morrison really lent into the anti-mandate freedom voters, I thought. That's what that's how I read it. We said, you know, people don't want lockdowns, people don't want um, daily press conferences. And then, and then this was the moment where he said very deliberately, maybe Anthony Albanese wants that. Now, there's no evidence that Anthony Albanese wants that. Anthony Albanese was asked at the press club. He does say he wants a priority briefing on it and looking at strategies to reduce the deaths. That's what I think the country wants. Let's look at the practical ways we can reduce the deaths. Antivirals, there are lots of actually medical solutions, vaccination rates for the third dose. How about the fourth dose? All of those strategies. But really, I think it's moving away from the pandemic headspace of that level of um, intervention that people are moving away from. I think that's right. And everyone, as you say, is desperate for that to be true. And it is true, but it's still wrecking or messing up people's lives, right? And and causing many deaths, of course. And I think it was interesting that uh, Anthony Albanese did in his final press club address say in that first week, he, he wants to get a brief so he can have a national strategy on COVID, which will include things like how do we get more people having their third booster, for instance, or their booster shot, because we're only at 70% on that. And um, so I heard Sharon Lewin on your show say that it's good, you know, we don't want it to be a political issue, but we do want it to be a policy that is managed well. And it goes to the point I was making earlier, it's been a very strange election campaign where a lot of policies aren't being talked about. And this is one of them, I think. So whether Anthony Albanese brought it in now because he's picking up what you're describing there, PK, which is a lot of people are still, you know, struggling with the impact of COVID on their lives. But I don't think it's a contentious thing that a, that a, a new Prime Minister, whether it's Scott Morrison or Anthony Albanese, um, then wants to have a national kind of strategy document or plan that they talk about re-COVID. It doesn't mean we're heading back to lockdowns and all of that. It's just seems to me sensible, really. 
Well, yeah, every country should be trying to reduce its death rate and deal with its transmission levels and deal with the staffing crises that are, you know, that's, that's hello, mm. that's what governments do or should do. Thanks for your question. Yeah, thanks for your question, Alistair. <laughs> send them in. In fact, you'll want to send them in because next week's edition will be different. It will maybe have an outcome unless it's hung or we're still counting. Uh, we're going to give you a special Monday edition, just Fran and I chewing the fat without a guest, and then we'll come back on Thursday again. But, of course, after the election, we will not deprive you. Keep your questions coming through the party room at abc.net.au. After the election, don't forget to vote. Vote early, vote often. Oh, no, that's not right. And uh, have a good election night. See you, no, PK. I, I, only vote once. Uh, I voted. Um, I've voted. Have you voted? I yeah, voted. Yeah, yeah, of course. We're good citizens. All right. See you, Fran. See you. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.